right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. We're here in the fabulous studio, um, Fist in Your Face, in Salt Lake City with another great studio audience. Uh, we're on the countdown of the last of the John Larson hosted episodes. I think we have about seven left um, for the year, and uh, I'm looking forward to retiring to um, Arizona. Is that, is that, is that where it works? <laughs> um, great. Well, um, welcome. Um, we this is um, even though we're all kind of lazy and we're amateurs. Um, this is. You know, we have to do this like a show, and sometimes we have cancellations and problems filling um, our guest our um, guest panel. And tonight's one of those nights. Uh, Randy, our producer, let me know early this morning that um, all of our guests had kind of fallen through, and we were we uh, were vacated on the panel. And then, lo and behold, coming up from the land of the rising sun. My good friend Micah was here, and he he volunteered to come in last minute and sit on the panel. Welcome, Micah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, it's great to have you. Um, is this your first time on Mormon Expression? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh well, L- long time listener, first time panelist. I'll, I'll I'll be gentle. Oh, thank you. Um, I was yeah. hoping for that. <laughs> um, uh, Micah and I have interacted online a few times, and then um, I met. Micah down at the um, the Arizona Live recording at the Yurt. You you were there. We, so. Yeah, we were all in the Yurt together. Yeah, it was excellent. Um, Nathan, you you have a comment already? Yeah, uh, yeah. Being on your left, is he the lovely? Oh yes. The, well, the, the, the actually the chair on my left is empty. So um, I offered uh, it to the audience, but no nobody nobody sat. But you do look fabulous. Tonight. Thank you. Thank you. As do you, sir. Um, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's jump into the news. First of all, um, not a big news week in the church. Uh, just two stories that, that, um, caught my, um, notice. Uh, Kate Kelly lost her appeal with the church. Um, well, I was surprised they even had an appeal process and <laughs> would acknowledge the fact that she lost her appeal, but uh, good for everybody or all around. Um, uh, yeah. So I guess, um, she moves on to greener pastures. I, uh, well, the the appeal was to her stake president, which was denied. So now she can still appeal to the first presidency, which, from what I understand, she's planning on doing. Well, good for her. I hope she gets what she wants. Um, way to go, Kate Kelly. Um, the the uh, next story is after we we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Of course, the church's little fiasco about um, conference and the first session. The church came out and officially acknowledged that the women's conference, uh, the women, the women's, you know, what formerly known as the women's conference is now the first session of conference. Um, I think a lot of ex-Mormons, um, talk about the church like it's this efficient, like conspiratorial big enemy in the room. I think this sort of thing shows that like the, um, there's not really anybody running the show up the, there. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is. No, doing. Yeah. no. That they are, they're kind of lost in the woods. They're a big organization. They have a really top heavy management structure, a lot of bureaucracy. And the horror stories coming out of the poor people who work there, um, are just uh, fantastic. If you can find a church employee and get them drunk sometime, I, I, <laughs> I advise it. It's, it's fantastic to hear their stories. You think your company's bad when it comes to bureaucratic nightmares. That one's just terrible. Well, and I, I'm amazed they get anything done. Well, and the, the top leadership is just so insulated from everything, even within the organization that, you know, nobody knows what's going on. It, it's clear. Like when I saw Jeffrey Holland's appeal, 
um, you know, to get people to go buy out theaters and go buy tickets to see Meet the Mormons. You know, he starts his little thing saying, we, the, the, the reviews, the test groups that saw this movie were just so elated that we could do nothing but release this to everybody in the world. You know how many people between him and the test group stacked that and, and manipulated the results and made sure, um, you know, by the time it got to the top, you know, nothing, um, um, is anything but perfect. They must be constantly scratching their heads and wondering why everything's not working when all the reports come in with such fabulous results. Yeah. It sounds like uh, living in North Korea kind of, you know? Yeah. <laughs> one could say that. You know, it's funny about the, the women's session at conference. I actually just visited, uh, Temple Square while I was in town today and just on a wild hair went inside the conference center. And, uh, cause I haven't been in there in a long time and the it's big, right? Yeah. It's quite big. It's quite large. Anyway. So he took me in there. The, one of the tour guides just took me in there and we sat down and chatted for a while. And he was like, Oh, did you hear the exciting news? I'm like, what? He's like, there is going to be an all new session of general conference. And I was like, Oh, the, the women's session. He's like, yes, the women's <laughs> session is going to be part of general conference. I'm like, wow, that is. That's super. That's great. <laughs> That's like, good for you. <laughs> I, I have, you know, in the past couple of weeks, I've been reading thing, more than I usually do. The things that have been hitting my news feed about the church and whatever. And there's this phrase that everybody, especially the liberal Mormons using all the time, a step towards. Step, step, step. They keep talking about step towards, step towards. Well, just fucking go there already. Like, why, why are, why is the church getting praised so much? And this, I don't mean to go up on tirade already. This bugs me about the Pope. Like, the Pope says things that a normal human being would get a meh for saying, and, like, the world goes nuts. Like, you know, we should stop eating people. Oh, fantastic! Way to take a stand. It's cannibalism. The Catholic Church. <laughs> like, like, the Catholic Church gets a pass on everything. It's like this, oh, the church, you know, we, uh, they, they come out and say, gentlemen, we want you to stop beating your wives. Oh, it's a great step towards equality. It's no step towards equality. Just get there already. It's 2014. We don't need to be taking steps anymore. Seriously. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the news. <laughs> the Mormon Expression Podcast is a listener-supported production. Visit our website, mormonexpression.com, to tip John's swear jar, or become a subscriber and help keep the show running. Thank you very much. We can't do it without you. All right. So when I, uh, decide, when I uh, laid out the schedule for the end of the year, I put... Um, for podcasts to kind of recap the standard works of the goofiest ideas in each. We've now done the uh, Pearl of Great Price. We've done um, the Book of Mormon, and now we're to the Doctrine and Covenants. And so tonight is the top ten goofiest ideas in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, by goofy, uh, I just mean that they're odd. <laughs> they're 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 strange ideas. They're not necessarily um, terrible. They're not necessarily bad they're not necessarily a proof that the book of mormon or the doctrine of covenants is untrue they're just really odd in, the, in this in this time and in the context of mormonism itself they, they can be quite strange ideas some of them are a little caustic some of them are just kind of kind of crazy um you could probably put the doctrine and covenants just as a goofy idea in and of itself but but we'll, we'll go through that so in the others i've kind of pulled sections for my 10 points in this one um I have some sort of meta topics, and, and you'll see those in, in reason. 
The, the, we'll start at number 10 and we'll just jump right in. The number 10 goofiest idea from the Doctrine and Covenants is that you can rewrite Revelation. Now, we've talked about this in this podcast. I've given presentations other, other places. You can go out to places like Mormon Think or the Utah Lighthouse Ministries, and this has been documented in painstaking detail. The problem is that Joseph Smith published the Book of Commandments in 1833, and then they did multiple revisions of the Doctrine and Covenants. And then now, given the Joseph Smith papers and other things, we have the original revelations. We have the handwritten copies. You don't change Revelation after the invention of the printing press because you get caught. And the problem is that the church itself is founded on the idea of Revelation. All the other churches were abomination. Remember what God told us? And they had drifted away, and we had to have a restoration of priesthood authority. And the restoration of priesthood authority gave us two things and two things only. One, the ability to do the ordinances correctly. So we said... Catholic baptism or Protestant baptism or whatever, it doesn't count. It doesn't work, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we now had the gates of heaven open. We now had revelation that there was no intermediary between us and God. There was no corrupt church that would misinterpret these things. And Joseph Smith could get these revelations sometimes right in front of people with the heavens open, write them down and publish them in a book, which he did. And then immediately started changing them in significant ways. Uh, DNC 7 is a great one with the rod of Aaron, um, um, where the original revelation was talking about a divining rod, right? And then they change it up um, um, considerably. We're going to hit on some of these others, but things are inserted, things are deleted, people's names are changed. We actually swap out whole individuals. And, and the, the problem, why this is so, so problematic for the church, and the church really doesn't want to deal with this, because what you would expect to see in a real, if this were a real, like, true religion, is that there would be footnotes that would say, we've changed this, or this has been updated, or the original edition read this way, and now it reads this way, and there'd be an explanation as to why. But there's not. And, and, and so the, my point is you juxtapose the idea of modern revelation with the idea that you're fucking with the revelation all the time. And those two things don't really mesh very well. Well, and the thing that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating is, you know, members of the church trump up all the time just how important ongoing revelation is. And I think it's a really cool idea that you, 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 you receive something from God and then you get a little bit more and you get a little bit more. But the way, the way the church uses it is like, no, we actually just keep revising the same stuff over and over again. And, you know, you actually hear guys like Rock Waterman and kind of these more fundamentalist, um, Orthodox Mormons complaining about that. You know, they, they expect ongoing revelation to mean more, more, more information, more mysteries unlocked when the, but, but the church uses it to just, redact stuff yeah yeah and and oftentimes in silly ways it comes back and 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 bites them and i would invite everybody uh there's a great book um called something about it's by marquette um uh where he just goes through and just line by line just the two revelations are side by side you can see which lines been redacted which have been added like i said there's plenty of this information out on the internet if you just do a google search on changes in the doctrine and covenants and i i know we've talked about it over the years you can go through with a fine tooth comb and find everything and it's it's really quite amazing and really that enough should be a, enough to deprogram somebody's testimony um I'm reminded of a story I read once. I, I think I've I think I've shared this before, but 
I, I read it on the internet. I don't know who, who it was, but it was very poignant. This guy met um, and baptized a woman, I think when he was in Japan as a missionary. And eventually after his mission, she, she, she'd converted to Mormonism and moved across. And then they were, uh, they'd gotten married and, you know, they'd been together for a few years. And then he kind of figured out the church wasn't true. But he felt so bad because he'd invested, you know, he'd taken this woman out of her culture and all this kind of stuff. And, f- you know, for years he kind of fussed about it. And finally he broke down and said, I, c- I can't, I can't do it anymore. I, I, you know, have to tell you, I, I feel so terrible about this. Um, but I don't believe the church is true. And she's just like, Oh, well, I, I haven't believed that for years. <laughs> I was just going to support you, she said. <laughs> and he said, Oh, after, you know, they have like a reunion of old friends. And then it's like, well, well, when did you know? She said, Oh, the first time I read the Doctrine and Covenant. <laughs> that, that was nonsense. <laughs> All right. Number two. And Micah, you kind of implied this one. Um, I have it titled, This is it. So we have all this scripture. We went through the Book of Mormon, you know, everything like running around the continent with these 350 pound plates and burying them in the ground and doing everything to preserve scripture. The, the, you know, Mormons love this story of, um, was it Qumran or the, the, where the um, scrolls were found? You know, these people who died protecting all these scrolls after the, the, um, Jerusalem was sacked and all this like ancient preservation of scripture to get these ideas to, 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 to us that scripture is so important. And then the heavens are open, right? We have prophets like I was talking about a minute ago and they can tell us anything. God's word is available for us today, right? And so it's the doctrine and covenants. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Go read it. Um, God's word for mankind today, after all this hoo-ha to restore, restore this, and this is what they tell us. It talks about like Ezra Booth going on missions and things like that. It's, and, and don't drink hot drinks and only eat meat in the time of famine and just stuff that's just, even for Mormons is nonsense, right? Like Mormons don't rub tobacco on the, ankles of their cows or whatever it says to do in the Doctrine of Covenants. I mean, there's only, how many pages of this are there? That's what God has to say to us? Like, um, yeah, where's the boiling of the water? I know I keep harping on this point, but God, next time you do this, next time around, commandment number one, boil your water. Thou shalt have no, you can do it number two, thou shalt have no other gods before me, I'm awesome, number two, boil your water. (laughs) You know, um, I know we're going to get to this later, but the things that Mormons talk about when they're proselytizing are things that aren't in the Doctrine and Covenants, like what we're going to talk about later, like the, you know, families are forever and, and stuff like that. And the first time I became aware of this problem was on my mission. I would always play with different – I attracted my whole mission. I just knocked on doors the whole time and it was a huge waste of time. But anyway, I, I would always play with different door approaches. And I remember one that I really loved was knocking on the door and they would open it. And I would say, hi, we're representatives of Jesus Christ. We're here to tell you that a prophet has been called and is here on the earth today. It's pretty good, right? And so, of course, most, you know, 99.9% of the time getting the door slammed in my face. One time somebody was like, really? So there's, there's somebody who speaks with God that's on earth today. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, what did he say? And I was like, <laughs> um, oh, uh, oh shit. Um, <laughs> Well, here in the Doctrine and Covenant, yeah, anyway. It's, it's been a long time. I personally basically refuse to have religious discussions with individuals. 
Um, unless I really get cornered, I, I won't do it. And, and I have people who have known me for a lot of years who they just don't, they don't, I don't talk about religion. But years ago, I would talk, I would talk a little bit about it more. And that was one of the questions I would ask Mormons if they, if they push, I said, all right, you have a prophet on earth today. Yes. And, and, and he's the, the, the spokesman for God. Yes. He's the one person authorized in this tumultuous, changing world. Yes. What's the last revelation he got? Most Mormons can't answer the question. Well, they would answer the same thing. They would think about it for a minute, and then they'd say proclamation of the family, which we now know was written by attorneys, right? That, that came out re- <laughs> recently. Um, wasn't even written by and, – and there was nothing really new in there even at the time. Um, and, you know, yeah. So, so, so what are the – the five most significant revelations in the last 30 years, right? Since Vietnam, you know, what's the most important thing the church has taught us since the Reagan administration? Oh, the one set of earrings. Yeah. Okay. You got, yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the things they come up with are, are not really revelatory. Okay. Number three, uh, related to our, this is it. I have modern scripture. "Quote unquote." What, what's interesting is there are uh, in the in the um, Salt Lake edition there are 136, 135. Let's find out. 138. Oh, I'm behind. There's 138 sections. The last one was added um, recently. It was um, 1918. So the the last section of section 138. What's interesting is of the 138 sec- sections. The lion's share, I think three quarters of them are all from the Kirtland period or before. They, they, the majority of the Doctrine and Covenants dates to um, the early stage of the church. And what's interesting is the revelations that Joseph Smith came up with that sort of define what more modern Mormonism is all came from the Nauvoo period. Right. So the, the Doctrine and Covenants itself, you know, I was harping on that this is modern revelation, it's not even modern for the church, and it's not even modern for Joseph Smith. That some of those who have accused Joseph Smith of being fraudulent say one of the proofs of that is during the early stage when he was up with a bunch of hicks in upstate New York, he was really liberal with writing revelation. And once there got to be more people paying attention to him and more of a structure, he didn't have the audacity to write revelations anymore. And I, I, I think it's, it's fascinating. But what I think is really fascinating is if you look at all the changes that have occurred in the world since 1830 or since 1842, I would dare proffer that there's been more change socially, fundamentally to our society from since the mid 19th century to now than in the previous 1000 years that, that living in the 17th century there were technological advancements over living in the 13th century, but it wasn't that different as compared to the pre-industrial age that um, Joseph Smith lived, lived in compared to now. And as technological advancement has increased and social change and social um, upheaval and disorder has increased. For example, in World War One, I've mentioned before, there was one particular battle that lasted about three days where they figure a million people died. Um, you know, we know about the, the many multiple holocausts of the 20th century. You know, the ones in Europe, the one in Cambodia, there's, uh, the one in Russia, all over the place. This, this social change and social upheaval. 
And as there has been more change, more technology, and more questions uncovered, God has become increasingly silent. And it's proof right there in the Doctrine and Covenants. He has a lot to say in 1831, but even by the time Joseph Smith's dead, he's, he's pretty much shut his trap. And after that, there's just a couple of revelations that come trickling in, right? Not unless you count no birth control, we'll never land on the moon, you know, <laughs> no interracial marriage. Those are all pretty, pretty, uh, pretty modern. What? But, but, okay, so we just talked about, I mean, that's a, that's a great one, um, with uh, the, and, and I have to correct people because we still in the church sometimes say blacks in the priesthood, right? Which undermines the fact that we wouldn't allow black women to go to the temple. It has nothing to do with the priesthood. Nor would we allow black people to pray. So it goes beyond. It's just, let's just call it racism. The Mormon sanctioned racism. Um, <laughs> right. and, and yes, but that's not been canonized. It's, it's, they've specifically not called that a, um, a section of the Doctrine and Covenants. What an insult. What a middle finger to people of color, right? Like, that they are not going to allow that to be because they don't want to actually admit they're wrong, right? And that's what they say now. These are problems with, with, with men. Um, yeah, modern scripture. Let's give some things for our time. Questions of, of when does life begin? When should life terminate? What's the moral justification for keeping somebody on life support? These are the sort of moral questions we struggle with today, and God is completely silent on them. But again, tobacco is to be rubbed on your cattle. Is that what it says? I might be making that up. It's for bruised cattle. Oh, bruised cattle. Bruised cattle. All right. All right. I stand corrected. I've never heard whether that, whether that works or not, but... Speaking of, speaking of, um, John Larson hy- hyperbole, it's, it's worth saying, I don't actually know that those poor missionaries in Texas were eaten. That's just my theory. We know they were chopped up. Uh, we know they disappeared. I, I believe that they were ingested. But I will say, I might be going out on a limb a little bit on that one. I'm sure they were delicious. Um, yeah. Okay. Number four, um, in, in, in relationship here are the missing doctrines from the Doctrine and Covenants. Remember, this Doctrine and Covenants here is, again, the most important scripture for us today. It's modern revelation. And what are the things that the church pounds on all the time? Families are forever, eternal families, right? You won't find that doctrine, that teaching, anywhere in here. Um, it's just it's just missing. Baptisms for the dead appear in the Doctrine and Covenants, but really the endowment doesn't. Um, they're sort of hinted at, but, um, some of the things that are most definitive for, like, like the doctrine that there should be multiple temples. That doesn't appear here anywhere at all. As a matter of fact, um, if you talk to, um, Jewish scholars, they'll scratch their head at Mormons building more than one temple because the temple is the dwelling place of God on earth. Why would you have two of them? That doesn't, doesn't, from, from, from the pattern of what we were, we were dealing with, it doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't deal with that anywhere in the Doctrine and Covenants, right? Um, so, so a lot of what the church does say is pulled from proof texting out of all these different talks and scriptures and assemble this new, um, um, Frankenstein's monster of a doctrine. But you can't read it in the Doctrine and Covenants. Hell, you can't even read the Doctrine and Covenants. It's not even in incremental order. Does anybody have an explanation as to why it's in the order it's in? 
And, and if you look at the different, if you look at the different editions of the book, they just randomly move things around. Um, seemingly random. There's never, never been any justification. It's like I said, it's not an incremental order. It's not organized in any real fashion because the book itself has no, has no organization and it really doesn't have a doctrinal basis. I got nothing. Sorry. I have no explanation. All for right. You. So those are my, those are my, um, high points. Let's, let's actually dig in. Everybody can get out their, um, quads. Do I even still, I don't even know if I have my scriptures on my phone anymore. I, um, yeah, they're not here. Um, I have my, I have my scriptures there. Yeah, they're stored here. To install iOS 8 or something. Yeah. They're stored <laughs> here in the, in the studio, um, where they're kept pristine. Uh, sp- yeah, yeah, well, they stay in good shape. Okay, um, DNC 110. Um, this is a vision manifest to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the temple in Kirtland on April 3rd, 1836. Manifest to them both simultaneously, right? So they're both praying in the temple, and a vision opens up, which they both confirm in the mouth of two witnesses. It's not one guy talking. This is two guys who see something. Um, so they're after a meeting. They're praying. The veil is dropped, and they are visited by heavenly messengers. Very important. We're going to skip ahead to um, verse 12, section 110. And there, there, this is, this is the big restoration moment. Very important. We're going to come back to this later in the list. After this, Elias appeared and committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, saying that in us and our seed, all generations after us should be blessed. Elias comes down and appears. And after this vision is closed, Elias leaves the building. Another great and glorious vision burst upon us for Elijah, the prophet, who is taken to heaven with, without tasting death, stood before us and said, blah, 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 blah. Two people, Elias and Elijah, appear before the prophet. Fortunately, Joseph Smith was not as schooled in language as he understood himself to be. And um, Elias is the Greek representation of Elijah, which was the Hebrew word. And they're the same guy. Um, so what you either have here is, um, well, we, we know that like Jesus's name is Joshua, right? Everybody, everybody knows that, right? It'd be the same as if, as if you read two different versions of the New Testament, one that had it transcribed as Joshua and one that had it transcribed as Jesus and said, Oh, there's two dudes. There's two gods, right? There, this, there's not two people. This is, uh, you will not find a single biblical scholar outside of Mormonism who would suggest this. I will go one step further. You will not find, I'm throwing the gauntlet down, you will not find a single Mormon biblical scholar who will go to a non-Mormon conference and say that there are two guys in the, in the, in the Bible, one named Elijah and one named Elias. I don't think I've ever heard. How do apologists work around that? I haven't read anything. 
with a lot of nonsense. It's been a lot of years since. Well, that goes without saying. It's been a lot of years <laughs> since I read it. Anybody want to look up fair and see, and see, <laughs> see what they have to say? Um, I, I know I have read that, that, um, I think, um, I don't know if it's Jesus the Christ or, or whatever. They say, golly gee whiz, who would have thunk there's actually two people? And this is revelation from Joseph Smith. Like they, the, I think they'll acknowledge that the Bible does not support the idea there's two guys, one Greek and oh, one right. Hebrew. Um, the, but they would say, well, there must be because Joseph Smith put it, put it there. They'll just argue from, from the case there. Well, and then didn't they make, that's what I don't understand still. Wasn't Elias, I've heard that it's a title, like that John the Baptist was an Elias for Jesus. Like, I've heard that, too. So how does that factor into all this? Yeah, the only problem with that teaching is that teaching— This just became gospel doctrine class. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That teaching, as far as I know, originated with Brigham Young, who taught that about Adam— um, that the, the Adam was a t- title as opposed to an individual. And then you could argue then that the Moses and the, and we talk about that quite a bit in the Adam God, um, episode of Mormon expression that, that, you know, how that hall works and you kind of move up in office and you're going to be a Jesus and you're going to be an Adam and then you're going to be a, um, a God someday. Um, so I guess that, that is a defense. But then again, who is this guy, right? If, if, uh, if 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 just a title, then then who is it? Yeah, I I would think that even Mormon scholars are embarrassed by this. Right? Okay, my favorite section, which is kind of funny because um, I did our Doctrine and Covenants for Dummies, and I never got to this um, to this section. Section 61, if you'll turn with me in your book. Revelation given through Joe Smith the Prophet on the bank of the Missouri River, August 12th, 1831. The one thing they don't tell you is, what the hell was Joseph Smith doing on the banks of the Missouri River in August of 1831? Well, I can tell you what he was doing on the banks of the Missouri River on August 1831. He was heading back to Kirtland after the failed Zion's um Zion's camp. And they were slogging their way. This was a long fucking walk from Kansas City up to Kirtland, Ohio. And they come to the banks of the Missouri and um, they don't have a lot of money heading back. So they're about to rent some canoes to head up the, the Missouri. But they're going to be heading up the Missouri, which means a lot of heavy paddling or mostly dragging the canoe with your gear in it by rope from the banks. Cold dark, slogging work. They don't have enough money to um, f- have any other real way of trans- transporting themselves. But lo and behold, Joseph Smith gets a revelation that the devil rides upon the waters. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in the revelation. <laughs> but the aftermath that they don't ever teach you is they pooled the money to buy Joseph and a few close friends tickets to go from that point up to Kirtland by stage, while the rest of those assholes had to slog their way up, even though the devil was on the on the water, they had to. They still had to use the canoes. They still yeah. had to use the canoes, but nice. Joseph <laughs> got to ride the Overland stage all the way back to Kirtland. It's good to be the king. Hey, I found the fair article on uh, Elias. Oh, 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 let's go. I mean, we we don't have to go back if you want. But well, sum it up. Sum it up. Okay. What's their, what's their well, I'll just I'll just read a couple sentences. There is no valid reason for confusion as to the identity and mission of Elias. There was a man named Elias who came to Joseph Smith, blah, 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 blah. Whether he was Abraham himself or someone else, 
from his dispensation, we do not know. Elias is one of the names of Gabriel, who is Noah, and is in this capacity that Gabriel visited Zacharias, the father. So it basically. So Elias would, is Gabriel, who's Noah. Who, well, so uh, so because Elias gave, let's see, the gospel of Abraham, and so maybe it was Abraham. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the same guy. That makes perfect sense. Uh, it's it's Elijah. All right. Okay, so 61 verse 5, For I, the Lord, have decreed in mine anger many destructions upon the waters. And then we skip to verse 14. Behold, I, the Lord, in the beginning blessed the waters, but in the last days by the mouth of my servant John I cursed the waters. Wherefore the day will come that no flesh shall be safe upon the waters. And it shall be said in days to come that none is able to go to the land of Zion upon the waters, be he that is up, but he that is upright in heart. So that's a sign that all of you signs you can look for that they will say, you know, like on CNN, behold, no one will go upon the waters, but those who are upright in heart. Um, the funny thing about this and why this is such a persistent, goofy idea is this is still around. This is not like tobacco bruises on cattle. Um, this is the justification they give missionaries for oh, not yeah. being able to go swimming. Oh, yeah. Um, and the only time they're allowed in the ocean is to um, do baptisms. You have to get special approval because I guess if there's special approval, the devil's power or dispensation over the sea is terminated for a short time. But there's no ordinance associated with that. I guess the devil pays attention to clerical sort of administrative decisions made in the bureaucratic belly of the church. I don't know how it works. Well, I know from my experience on my mission, that's why we had to take short showers, you know. Because the devil rides upon the waters, and he'll make you do stuff in the shower. Oh, I, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's the devil. The devil in the water. <laughs> the devil, it's not the shampoo. It's the, uh, it's, it's the water. Um, but this is one of those tosser revelations that's in there, and it goes on and on about it. And it's like, really? That's right. Because other than that, like, there's water parks in the state of Utah, and there's swimming pools, and, and like, I don't really think Mormons alter their behavior. Like, I don't really think you'll find fewer canoes per capita, um, in the Morador, or you'll find fewer Mormons that will go on cruises or whatever. I, so, so I think it's one of those things that's just around, but nobody actually does anything with it. Hey, John, I, I've got kind of a little bit of a story with that from my mission. No, Charles, go ahead. Um, so I was in Guatemala and, uh, towards the end of my mission, I actually served in uh, Santiago Atitlan, which all the Mormon scholars believe were the waters of Mormon. Oh, wow. Know, the, the heart of it all. It's exciting. But um, that particular area, the only way that you could get to it was a 45-minute boat ride or a three-and-a-half-hour bus ride around way around uh, the lake. And so, you know, that became kind of the thing. We had to get special permission from the mission president in order to ride the boat back and forth. And we were the only ones that had permission to actually be in a boat and on the water. And, you know, it was, everybody wanted to come and do splits with us because, uh, you know, we then they could ride in the boat as well. Um, there was kind of a, um, old story out there that 
there had been missionaries that got on a boat, crossed the lake without permission. The boat capsized. Never saw the the missionaries again. I bet they were eaten. They they might have been (laughs) (laughs) chopped up into small, fine pieces. (laughs) But, uh, and, and I mean, we, that whole, uh, old wives' tale or whatever you want to call it. It's was, scri- not way old on well, it's scripture. It's yeah. not old. We, do we need to but, go back to section 61 again? But, I mean, we, we held fast to that. There, there was one time when, uh, the mayor of the city got kind of pissed off with everybody and shut the water down. And so for like two weeks, we didn't have any running water in the, in the city. And we ended up calling the mission president up and saying, we don't have running water. We need to take shower, we need to bathe. Can we get into the, you know, can we go and swim? And he said, all right, yeah, we've got your, you know, we'll give you permission for that. Funny thing, two days later, the zone leaders found out about that, and we were on permanent splits for the rest of the time. <laughs> and one of the zone leaders came back with a very distinct sunburn, nice. um, or a very pronounced sunburn, uh, to the next zone conference. So. Cool. Nathan? This, this uh, subject of the waters and water parks in Utah, um, when I was younger... I I got a season pass to Raging Waters, unbeknownst to my dad, who, when he found out, then he was keen to tell me that he had serious reservations that I would be having a pass to the, the place and be surrounded by the fiery darts of the adversary. <laughs> fiery waves, more like. Um, yeah, I, I think you can find common. Go, go ahead. So if this revelation was so important, why did they go on boats over to England and Europe and convert people to come back? Well, it's, it's, it's really a fascinating cultural study, and I bet if we went to Dialogue magazine, somebody's written about it, because... It's one of those things that if you went and asked Mitt Romney, do Mormons have a problem with water? He'd say, oh, no, 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 no. But it's here in the Doctrine and Covenants, and I bet everybody in this room has some story about some Yahoo sometime in their Mormon career who said something about this, right? But you're right. You know, um, when it's convenient for Joseph Smith to not go on the, the river, then he has a revelation. But when it's convenient for him to send the 12 away to England to do work, then we can override it. And again, you know, we saw just administratively, like, why is it okay if the mission president gives permission? What, how does that work? You know? Well, and the thing that I don't understand, like my, my perception of Joseph Smith is that he was kind of doing this a lot, you know, oh, I just received a revelation about this. How did this one end up being canonized? It just seems so random. Uh, that, it's, it's a great question. The canonization process is, um, is opaque. They didn't, uh, they didn't have a correlation back then either. That's no, how it slipped through. No, they yeah. did not. Okay, number seven. Um, I've kind of lumped this in together, which is the Doctrine and Covenants has several sections where people are either publicly sanctioned or shamed, or we have mission calls. And I, I lumped these two together. I'm, I'm in section 56, where Joseph Smith would take revelation from God. And this goes to my first point. God speaks to 
humankind very rarely. And when he does, I'm thinking of the little Dos Equis guy. He speaks to humankind rarely, but when he does, he chastises Joseph Smith's friends. Right? <laughs> Wherefore right. I revoke the commandment and given to Thomas B. Marsh and Ezra Thane. And, and he, so he's, he's taking individual people in individual direction and canonizing those, those statements. And, and so 56 is one of those where he wants to put very clearly, he's moving this responsibility from this guy to this guy. You flubbed up and now I'm going to go over here. And here's section four, section four of the Doctrine and Covenants. God opens the heavens and speaks to our time. Only 138 sections. Now and behold, a marvelous work is about to come forth, blah, 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 blah. And it's a, it's a mission call, right? And there's several of these, right? One right after the other after the other. And they're calling people to go on individual missions. Why do we care? Like, okay, we get it. Mormons go on missions. We've got it. You really need to put that in the doctrine and covenants? This is a weighty measure that that this is what God talks about. Well, and isn't section five virtually the same text, or maybe it's section uh, that's, three? That's Martin Harris. Remember, they're not in order. Yeah, yeah. section six. Um, that's Urim and Thummim. Um, it, it regurgitates that language over and over again. Yes, it does with with different with different mission calls and. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's the, the one thing, but the public sanctioning, the publicly calling out, um, especially the people who fell out of favor, it's not cool, God. That's not the way you manage. You don't publicly call out your leadership for not going along with what Joseph Smith does, especially when they've been dead for, for a hundred and whatever years. There's a, there's a, the church about 10 years ago released a CD. This is prior to the Joe Smith papers released, released a big set of CDs that had documents on them. And, um, they had names, uh, whole big black sections redacted. It looked like something coming out of like the Patriot Act, uh, Bush administration. <laughs> and when the scholars said, why, why? And they're like, protect the privacy of the individual. Like these guys have been dead for 150 years. Like what privacy and, and, and the, the, the books, especially ones that aren't canonized are full of like people getting up and being called out for adultery and all sorts of things. Why these guys, you know, and yeah, you, it's because it's manipulative. Joseph Smith was trying to manipulate people. He was trying to shame people. The church doesn't want information out. The church wants to redact things. It's, it's not, in my view, align with what makes for good holy scripture. Imagine yourself on a stormy afternoon, the fire, you're reading the Dhammapada, right? You're reading this great Buddhist text on, you know, the middle way and the middle and behold, my servant, Shamalama Ding Dong, he's an asshole and he needs to stop stealing the wafers from... You'd be like, what is this? Why is this in the scriptures? But that's exactly what's in the DNC. You know, be- because of Mr. Deity, now whenever I picture God, I picture Brian Dalton. But <laughs> but, I, but but it seems like he didn't ever read, have a chance to read how to, win fl- win, uh, how to win friends and influence people because that seems like pretty basic, basic uh, management stuff. For sure. Okay, we're now down to the top three, the bottom three. The law of consecration slash the united order. Um, this idea pops up in several instances, incarnations in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants and throughout church history. Let's be clear to all those seminary teachers out there, this doesn't work. Communal systems do not work for reasons that a good 
mediocre PhD in economics can explain to you. You mean like you don't have to have like top of the line um economists, but they can go through and explain to you why the system that was set up um both in Missouri and then again in Utah were doomed to fail for purely mathematical reasons. It wasn't because people were disobedient. It wasn't because they 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 didn't obey. You cannot set up a self-sustaining economy in Orderville, Utah. It's not possible. Um, and, and the problem is this idea keeps coming out. But what I find really repugnant about the idea is it's always another way to blame all of us, right? Economically, you can look at it. And Leonard Arrington wrote a really wonderful book on, on the economics of the Utah settlement called Building the Kingdom of God. I highly recommend it. Um, and he was faithful to the day he died, the church historian. And it really kind of goes through what was going on, um, in, in here and in this attempt to build this united order. Of course, in Utah, you have on, on two levels, you, you have this united order that people, you know, your Scandinavian immigrants were expected to live in this communal order. But the capitalists, Brigham Young and his, and his, um, cronies were cornering markets on lumber and on, and, and sending people who were their competitions on missions out to the hinterlands. And they were doing high scale, full on capitalistic behaviors. And, you know, there's a reason that, that like Brig- Brigham Young and the Mormon church owned huge sections of, um, of Union Pacific, even they probably still do. Like they were the principal stakeholders or shareholders for Union Pacific up until even, I think even the seventies because they, they had played hardball like economic games back in the 19th century. So to look at Brigham Young and how he got so wealthy through manipulation of natural resources in the, you know, in the 1850s, 1860s. Meanwhile, preaching this, hey, we're all one communal brotherly love, take it to the bishop's storehouse, um, that's in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's, it's really naive and duplicitous. And it's just Joseph Smith's version, when you look at his maps and his thing, was just plain old weird, you know, um, and it just would have never flown. You uh, want to join a commune. Uh, That's, uh, <laughs> I, I stepped on some holy ground for you. you. Now, listen here, John. There's things you don't understand. No, I'm just there, kidding. You I, know, when they did, it, there is a lot more free loving when you um, set up a, uh, a um, communal system. Happened in both instances in so, Utah. Sounds like fun. Yeah. All right. Um, United <laughs> Order. Okay. Let's go down to the last two. I've, I've kind of jumbled everything, to, a bunch of stuff together in the, in the, in, in the, in number two, which is the restoration of the priesthood, restoration of the sealing power. Um, we have three big problems with this restoration. Of course, anybody who grew up in the church knows that we know exactly how the Aaronic priesthood was, was restored because they celebrate it and they go to raging waters or lagoon or something and they go, they go fishing or do some sort of activity to celebrate that. But there's three things that are really fuzzy that scho- the scholars argue about quite a bit. One, we don't have good, we don't have any good, um, account of the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. As a matter of fact, those scholars who have dealt with it show that the facts given around it are inconsistent. Two, DNC 27, let's go there, which is our principal source for a lot of this stuff actually appeared in the Book of Commandments before as a section, and none of the stuff on the Restoration was in there. 
So when it's republished in, in 1835 as the Doctrine and Covenants, three years later, suddenly all this restoration stuff shows up that wasn't even in the Revelation when it was published two years before. Now, we know how like memory and everything works. Your memory doesn't get better as time goes on. Your records do not get more accurate. Generally, the first version of a document is going to be the more accurate one. And here we have this instance where the Doctrine and Covenants has been mucked with. So that's two. We do. So first of all, we don't really know when the Melchizedek priesthood was restored and there's problems with it. Two, the, the, the texts that we use to, to justify that are, have been mucked with. And three, let's talk about the restoration of the sealing power, which is a very important part of, um, of the, the, the whole movement, right? The sealing power, the idea that you can be sealed to a woman and of course, and, uh, and sealed to children and the law of adoption, but it was always part and parcel with the law of polygamy. Now, we know that Joseph Smith, quote-unquote, married Fanny Alger. And we know this now, even though there's people who've been accused of lying, including myself for years, for saying things like that, but the church two weeks ago publicly acknowledged that Joseph Smith took Fanny Alger as a polygamist wife. The problem is, the sealing power was not restored until 1836. Joseph Smith marries Fanny Alger in the early 1830s, and the power to seal was restored in 1836. Fanny Alger, 1832, 1831, ceiling power 1836. This is a huge problem that the church cannot adequately deal with. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith tried to deal with this um, by suggesting that the revelation, I think in one of the headings said, this revelation must have actually come about in 1831. And the reason that's been in the heading for a long time, we go to DNC 132, matter of fact, let's do that. Okay, so so this is what the heading actually says. Although the revelation was recorded in 1843, it is evident from historical records that the doctrines and principles involved in this revelation have been known by the prophet since 1831. There is no evidence or, or um, what, what do you say? There is no evidence in the historical records that this doctrine was known before 1843. There's only evidence that Joseph Smith was out stooping women before 1843. So they said, well, by gum, this revelation had to be um, around before it. But there is absolutely no doctrinal evidence to suggest that. And the, the guys putting it in here were covering for the fact that Joseph Smith was involved with, with Fanny Alger. But, but let's go back to what I was just saying. This isn't, we're not talking about this revelation 132. We're talking about the restoration with Elijah and Elias and all those guys coming down. That doesn't happen until 1836. So there's no way Joseph Smith could have gotten this revelation in 1831 because the sealing power wasn't even um, introduced to him until the Kirtland Temple was built. It's all over, guys. The church is not true. Go home. <laughs> I just don't like how angry you get, John. <laughs> it's the anger that concerns me. <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm just passionate. And That's I'm what I tell my dad. I'm throwing stuff around. <laughs> I'm so angry. All right. As long as we're here, number one, 
Top 10 goofiest ideas in the Doctrine and Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants, section 132. And of course, we have a whole episode dedicated to this. And of course, the church only ever reads the first half. This thing is not only crazy, it's deplorable. And it's really deplorable for a, for a couple reasons. And we'll review them again. I invite you to go back to listen to that podcast. One, Emma is threatened with destruction if she doesn't go along. She, a trap is laid. You have free will. You can, uh, you can agree to this, but if you don't, you will be destroyed. What kind of choice is that? Two, of course, we, we introduce this law of celestial marriage, which is multiple, multiplicity of wives. That's terrible. The church is still trying to figure out how to do with that. And three, and the one that I keep harping on is it goes on and on about like virginity and it has two classes of wives this is a revelation it has wives and concubines and it talks about whether or not a woman has had intercourse determines what kind of class of 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 wife she can be this is terrible terrible stuff and it's still here. The church tries to pretend it's not. If you look at its manuals, it ignores large sections of this. It tries to steer you away from it, but it is here. And right. it's not going anywhere. You know, when I was a believer, I loved uh, Section 121, you know, because I loved how it, it was about persuasion, long-suffering. Like, that's how you know when the priesthood is being exercised righteously, right? When you're not compelling or forcing somebody to do something. And I never, you know, one of the, one of the big nails in the coffin of my testimony was, was this kind of stuff. You know, the, the threatening of destruction for Emma. And then, you know, the, the angel with the drawn sword threatening Joseph that he doesn't go through with it. I mean, that's, it's horseshit. <laughs> go ahead. Was this a revelation right after Emma publicly in Release Society told them that he was practicing for polygamy. Like it, it, it was. It was um, around about the same time. So the, the the history of this is this revelation. Joseph Smith wrote down. He'd been practicing polygamy secretly for some time, and it appears that Joseph Smith started. Pre- it's it's not clear what Emma knew, but the brethren were publicly denying it, and they were bringing women in secretly. And they would bring them into the room, and they would tell them about this, and they would marry them secretly. Sometimes secretly from their own husbands. So the women were oftentimes married. Joseph Smith had this revelation. It was delivered to Emma, and then Emma famously threw it in the fire and, burn, and bur- burned it up. Um, and then Emma took the opportunity, being an intelligent woman that she was, when Joseph Smith was publicly um, denying it, she then turned the Relief Society into a crusading organization against polygamy. What Emma didn't know is that almost everybody in the in the Relief Society was already uh, <laughs> married, married to, to somebody. A lot of them already married to her husband, and unfortunately, it appears that she she didn't know that. Um, of course, at Joseph Smith's death, well, Joseph Smith, the the brethren dissolved the Relief Society, and it was dissolved for twenty years. And what's funny is you can read all these histories of the Relief Society, and they don't talk the, about the fact that the organization was dissolved for a large portion of the church and reinstated after the church came public, public with polygamy. Um, so, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a lot of stuff going on. But there's, there's one thing I'm going to mention here. We're going to come back to this in a couple weeks. But there's a, there's a key line from this, this 132. I invite everybody to go back and read it. But this is in verse 39. And um, God is giving his justification for polygamy practice in the old days. He's talking about David. 
And he said, and he shall not inherit them, his wives, he shall not inherit them out of this world, for I gave them unto another. Two words that I want you to key in on, inherit and gave. The bottom line of this revelation is not polygamy and not even concubinage. It's the women are property. And everything that you can read about what Joseph Smith talks about, and even the language of the temple today. Why I don't agree with Kate Kelly is Kate Kelly wants to reform a church that sees Kate Kelly as a possession. That's not a redeemable stand. Women in the Doctrine and Covenants, and we talked about in the Book of Mormon, they're just nothing. And But in, in Mormonism, women are property. We're going to come back to that in a couple weeks. Well, on that note, <laughs> geez. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, Celestial Marriage, Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine and Covenants is a bevy of weirdness. I invite everybody to read it. Um, um, you know, people say I'm anti-Mormon or whatever, but I give the same message. Go read the Mormon scriptures. Pray. Pray about it. Um, talk to the missionaries. Ask them Ask them questions. Um, challenge it. Take Moroni's promise. You know, go... Um, See what you can find out. I say the, I say the same thing. You thought I was, you thought I was going to say, I say these things. I, no, I seriously no. thought you were going to do that. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Uh, <laughs> no, that, that's, that's the doctrine. Earlier, I thought you were going to pass the scriptures to me. You were like moving. I was like, are we going to do this? Like, <laughs> go ahead, man. Well, I'd just like to say that I really appreciate, uh, John Larson, Mormon expression. I uh, Googled it up a year and a half ago. I'm 68 years old, raised in the church, went on a mission, married in the temple, did family home evening, raised four kids, took them to church. As I was raising my kids, I started as doubting church and I decided at that time I wasn't going to influence them the way my dad did I give them their own free choice and uh, they're not in the church today I'm thankful for it because they're my support now because this is summer I told my wife I don't believe don't pay my tithing anymore and there's a ritual and I'm going to do a shout-out, and I've been doing this for a year, for John Larson. You have been doing he, this for a year, every week. And that's a ritual you see in church when you go to church. You hand this envelope to the bishop. <laughs> it's kind of a sign I'm a true believer. And this envelope is one of the donation envelopes. I've crossed out the name. I mailed it in. Here to John Larson and filled it out just like I did the ritual in the church. He needs all the help he can get financially to keep this going. Because there's a lot of people out there hurting and they think they're alone. They don't, and I thought I was alone until a year and a half ago. And in this year and a half I've studied and learned and I just can't leave it alone. And you leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. 
And I know more now than I ever knew. And I'm still learning. And I just hope that my wife will come around and see the light with me. But I still love her. I told her I'll stay married to you. And we've had a great life together and we'll have another one. Thank you, John. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's um, it's not fun leaving the church. Um, I it was reminding me this weekend. I had a um, I uh, I attended church the last time nine years ago. It's been nine years for me since I've been, and I had a um, sort of a blow up with a uh, a fairly close relative over the weekend. One that I thought wouldn't come wouldn't come up, but apparently. These thoughts and feelings have been festering for a long time. And you can leave the church, but the church will never leave you alone. And, um, and the people who are around you won't leave it. And it's difficult. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of programming. They, why they spool that wire tight when you're a kid and they know what they're doing. And it's not easy to unwind all that stuff. It takes a lot of years. And, um, I guess what I would say uh, out there to, to some of, some of my critics, whatever, is I'm rough around the edges. I curse like a sailor. I laugh at sacred things. And that's my delivery. And that's me. That's who I am. But don't confuse my delivery with what I'm saying. I've had more than one apologist and smarty pants, um, accuse me of being a liar in the past. And I always give them the same response, which is, come on, come on the podcast. Tell me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm lying. You can accuse me of hyperbole. I'll take that one. Sometimes I say that people have been eaten when all we know for sure is they were chopped up with a chainsaw. (laughs) All right. All right. I'll, I'll own it. But, um, the, what I've been trying to say, what I've been trying to do comes from a sincere place and it comes from a place of just what you're saying of, of helping myself, helping other people deconstruct this thing that they were part of. And I use crude humor and crude language purposefully to illustrate that some of these ideas, they're just plain stupid to declaw them, to pull the teeth out of them. And I think there are people who mistakenly see my ridicule of this religion, of this tradition, as ridicule of them. And it's a very difficult problem to deal with, and one that I'll be recording a podcast on here this next week. Um, but I am who I am. I am sincere. And for those who can get past my sailor talk and innuendos, by the way, have you noticed that Lindsay's really the one with the dirty mind, not me? <laughs> Um, if you can get past that, then you can find what's, what's, what I think is a, is, is a value. And I, I appreciate your kind words and for many others who've shared the same sort of thing. Are we going to end on a testimony meeting? This is kind of lame. <laughs> yeah. 
Feels uh, right, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, oh, once again, um, thanks for joining. Um, please check out Whitefields Educational. We've got a lot of different things going on with counseling services and educational classes and other podcasts. You can check out the Reasonability Podcast. Please check out Mormon Expression Voices for individual stories coming through. You can see the stuff that I'm working on these days, but if you go over to johnlarson.org, and uh, my new podcast is about to be launched. Um, I announced um, the studio campaign. If you go over to Whitefields, uh, hopefully you'll be able to see that um, so we can help fund the studio and keep the ball rolling. Micah, what are you working on these days? What do you want to pr- push promote? Oh, I don't... I'm not working on nothing. Didn't you go and like try to burn down the church or something a month or two ago? <laughs> I swear I read your name like on the on the hate list with church security. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm on the hate list. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. No, I'm I'm just uh, living life, man. All right. Well, excellent. Where else can people do you, do you blog? You've been on other podcasts. Yeah, I used to podcast for a thoughtful faith back when I was a believer and exploring sainthood, but. Um, that perspective doesn't really resonate with me anymore. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm just uh, raising kids and hanging out, and still love talking about Mormonism. So well, thanks for dropping by. You say you come through town a lot. You'll have to come on again. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, thanks, thanks everybody. Good night. The Mormon Expression Podcast is recorded live before a studio audience in Salt Lake City on Tuesday nights at 6.30. Come down and join the audience, take part in the podcast, and meet John and the panelists. The Mormon Expression Podcast is produced by the Whitefields Educational Foundation. Visit us online at whitefieldseducational.org to find out about our counseling services and other special events.